We are continuing in our study of the Gospel of Matthew. And by way of introduction, I want to just say a few things. The last 500 years in world history has really been an exciting time for the advancement of truth. With the invention of the Gutenberg Press in 1436, suddenly Bibles and Christian books were able to be accessible in a way that hasn't been in other times in history. William Tyndale, who translated the scriptures into English when he was opposed by the Roman Catholic Church, he famously quipped, I defy the Pope and all his laws, and if God spare my life, I will make a boy that drives the plow to know more scripture than you do. Pretty bold thing to say to a Pope, right? But soon, Tyndale Bibles were flying around the English-speaking world being printed like crazy. Many of them are actually very small. You can stick it, you could hide them in your pocket, and that's how they smuggled these Bibles in and out of England. Virtually every Christian could gain personal access to the Word of God through such an invention. As printing progressed, the Bible is now available in every key language, and new translations are being done every year. Furthermore, the cost of production is going down, and nowadays, even in America, you can can find Bibles uh, for sale at the dollar store. You can buy a Bible for a dollar. Pretty remarkable. I read a stat that this week that the average American household owns three Bibles. Other homes own many more. Add to that, the digital revolution has put the gospel message in front of billions of people around the world. I've noted elsewhere that even if every physical Bible was destroyed in the world, it would be nearly impossible to erase the digital witness of Scripture on the Internet. So the Bible is steadfast. It is not going anywhere. And yet, we are living in arguably arguably the most pagan culture in modern history, with millions upon millions of people denying the saving gospel of Jesus Christ despite having completely unhindered access to Christian truth. How do we explain such a phenomenon that we've had the most amount of truth dispensed in this generation and yet seemingly so few people embrace it? How do we make such sense of this phenomenon? Well, When we examine the New Testament, we find that Jesus himself is speaking to this very thing in Matthew chapter 11. So if you have your copy of Scripture, please turn to Matthew chapter 11. We are progressing in our exposition of this text. And in Matthew 11, we find ourselves really jumping into the middle of Jesus' discourse, ministering among the small Galilean towns. Jesus is preaching on the nature of the kingdom of heaven. And we've talked about this for several weeks now. But here he's seizing on an opportunity to instruct on the nature, on the ministry of John the Baptist in announcing the Messiah. The arrival of John followed by Jesus marks really a transitional point in the course of salvation history. Now at the coming of Christ to earth, salvation was made available to all who would turn from their sins and believe on the Savior, Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus remarks that of all the biblical history, everything had been pointing to that one moment. Everything was building up to this pinnacle point when Jesus was going to come and deliver his people. And what would the people of Israel do? What were they supposed to be doing? And Jesus tells them earlier, he says, they are to enter the narrow gate. He says that back in Matthew chapter 7. And then last week we even looked at the fact that as people are coming in through this narrow gate, if you would, Jesus himself says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. There is sort of this 
this zeal, this excitement, this power, this strength, this struggle, not to get into heaven. We know that that's by grace through faith in Christ alone. But for those who are coming into the kingdom, you don't just stroll in. There is a holy violence, if you will, of the personal, of the heart, to, to purpose, to fight against your own sin nature, to fight against the ideologies of the world, and to take the kingdom of heaven by force. But there's also people who will harden their hearts in rebellion and will not accept the message of salvation. In Matthew 11, Jesus says, Open wide the door of salvation. He pleads with them in verse 15, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. If, if you hear the gospel and it makes sense to you, and you understand the imperative of the gospel, believe it. There's, there's no mystery here in terms of human language. We understand that only the Lord can open the understanding, only the Lord can open ears and open eyes and open hearts. But if you hear the voice of God speaking to you, don't harden your hearts in rebellion, as Hebrew says. But what is the response to Jesus by people in these towns? How, how are they responding to him? That's what we see in Matthew 11, starting in verse 16. Jesus is, again, talking to the crowds that are around him, and he's continuing in his discourse, and he says in verse 16, But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to other children and say, We played the flute for you, but you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes." Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Very sobering passage of Scripture. We understand that Jesus' ministry progresses uh, in stages, really. The first part of his ministry, he spends the vast majority of his time in the northern region of Galilee in Israel. And early on, he's moving on from his hometown of Nazareth, and he's, he moves over to this bustling fishing village in Capernaum. It's on the Sea of Galilee. Everywhere he went, he preached the gospel, the good news of the kingdom And while he drew crowds by the thousands, there were surprisingly few who actually repented of their sins and trusted in him. We see this in many places in the Gospels. For every one curious follower, every one person who who was thinking and listening and paying attention, it seemed as though there were two critics who would show up and just blast him for what he was saying. Naysayers. And on this day particularly, Jesus addresses this issue of those who would hear but not necessarily listen. There's a difference between hearing and listening, isn't there? Verse 16, he poses the question, but to what shall I compare this generation? This generation. This was a, a rabbinic way, this is a, a, a technique that the rabbis would use uh, sort of to, to pique interest. Generation would be really the whole group of, of people who are alive even right now. What about this generation? And he's offering an assessment of the Jewish society at large. 
To what shall he compare them? What are they like? He likens them to children, but not in a good way. Verses 16 and 17. But to what shall I compare this generation? He says, it is like children sitting in the marketplaces who who call out to the other children and say, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. So he makes note of children who are sitting and playing in the marketplace. Generally, uh, the marketplace was uh, the place of business. It was also the center of all social activity in these cultures. It was not uncommon to be in the marketplace and you would see going by either a funeral procession or you'd see over in the distance a a wedding taking place. And so the marketplace, that's where all the action was. That was the center of town. And as families would gather together in the marketplaces and carry out their business, it was very common to see children who were maybe bored of what their parents were doing and they're playing in the streets. And they're seeing other children, they're playing games and there's all kinds of life bustling in the marketplace. And Jesus seems to describe the games that these children are playing and would have been a common occurrence for children to, to reenact both weddings and funerals as they see them being played out. And these were games for them. And Jesus, really, who pays attention to children, sees in per, he, this portrayal, and he sees in his mind here, this, the imagery here, are these two groups of kids in the marketplace, and they're yelling back and forth to each other, and one group is saying, let's play a wedding. The other group is saying, well, no, let's play funeral. And they can't seem to get their way. And you know how that goes when children just start obstinate. They don't want to bend and flex, so they just yell at each other all day long. It's like a teleplay in my house right now, you know. No, but this is what they do. I mean, they argue back and forth about what game they want. I want to play this game. I want to play that game. Well, that's what Jesus is describing here, this back and forth. And Jesus notes really a kind of childishness and a sort of stubbornness as they call out to each other. Verse 17 One group is saying, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We want want to do wedding. Let's do wedding. And the other group says, we sang a dirge, a very sad song, a somber song, and you did not mourn. We want want to play funeral. Let's, Let's act out a funeral. No matter what the game is being called out, neither one is responding. Whether it was the flute of the wedding or the dirge of the funeral. But this is the scene he sets up. And here's the bigger idea here. No matter what is taking place, neither group of children is responding. Nobody is moving. They're not budging on what this game that's being played. And then Jesus seizes on this imagery and he makes application. He makes application to both his own ministry and to the ministry of John the Baptist. Look at verse 18. He starts with John. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. First, Jesus applies a scenario to John, and now scholars have really assigned the illustration different ways. If you read commentaries and you read on biblical texts, sometimes um, parables or illustrations uh, sometimes are not always exactly what we think they are, that there is really two schools of thought. It could be read this way or it could be read that way, and usually that's fair. That's, That's fine, because as long as the overarching truth is there and is understood, then we understand the meaning of the passage. So scholars have said, okay, is he referring to to John having the funeral ministry, uh, and and then the others are are saying no, or is it that that they want John to have a funeral? You know, so there's questions about which application is being made. But I tend to think that the idea behind this is that John's ministry is being likened to that of a funeral. John's ministry is being likened to a funeral, because John was keenly aware of the seriousness of his ministry. It was not necessarily fun to follow John's ministry. Now, you had devoted disciples that were following John's ministry, 
But really, if you think about it, John came for a very specific purpose. He came to call out people's sins and blast them for their sins and then point people to the coming Messiah. And he did this over and over again. And Pharisees would come out into the wilderness and he would just sit there and just you know, blast them over and over again for being snakes and being vipers. And he was telling them to repent and woe to you. And it was not fun to listen to John in that regard. But really, John didn't offer any gospel. There was no good news per se. Now, you could argue that there were you know, gleanings of the gospel and different things he said. But by and large, his ministry was that of judgment and that of repentance. His message was this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's coming. So because the Messiah is coming, because he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, you've got to stop what you're doing and clear out your, your sins and get yourself ready to receive the Lord. It was a cleansing ministry. It was a purification kind of a ministry. Not only was John serious with the message, however, he was also serious in his pattern of life. For what we can tell, John took what's known as the Nazarite vow. The Nazarite vow. We see that vow articulated in Numbers chapter 6. And the vow consisted of just a couple things. The first was uh, he would abstain from wine and alcohol. So he never drank any kind of alcoholic beverage. That was part of that vow. The second thing is he would let his hair grow. And he didn't allow a razor to touch his head. So he had a, it, certainly the, the temples of his hair uh, were, were let grow long. Probably other parts of his hair as well. So he didn't cut his hair. And a third one was he wouldn't go near a dead body for the, in order to abstain from defilement. And so he was not allowed to touch a dead body. Certainly human, but even, even a dead animal. He couldn't go near a dead animal. Again, these are just parts of this Nazarite vow of purification and of, cons- and of consecration. And if you take into consideration, though, his rough garments of camel's hair and the leather belt, this, this gritty leather belt he would wear, and his extreme diet of locusts and wild honey, you can get the sense that John was probably not appealing to look at as well. He wasn't appealing to listen to. He was rough, rough and uncomfortable. He dressed like a prophet because he spoke like a prophet because he was a prophet. So devout and so serious-minded. And you think that for serious-minded believers that he would have been their preacher of choice. There's some kind of a draw that we have sometimes to, to really rough preachers. You know, the preachers that preach hellfire and brimstone, they, they fire you up, they jazz you up. And you, and you get serious about your sin and you want to just take the world by force and that kind of a thing. And so you'd think that for those people, John's your guy. But he's not. He's not. Instead, they're yelling at him and they're saying, he has a demon. He has a demon. John was so radical and so extreme that instead of heeding the warnings, they actually accused him of being demon-possessed. So this is the most devoted, radical guy in the world, and they're not listening to him. Instead, they just accuse him of being a demoniac. So John was essentially singing a dirge, a solemn funeral song, but yet nobody was mourning their sin. They were not mourning their sins. And so if people aren't responding to judgment, then what do you do? What's the pragmatic thing to do? Well, you change your topic or you change your tactic, right? So maybe they'll respond to a hopeful message of life and salvation and gospel and grace, right? However, look at verse 19. Jesus says, the son of man came eating and drinking and they say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He's talking about himself at this point. 
Son of man is a messianic title that Jesus takes for himself. It comes from Daniel. But he's speaking specifically about his own ministry and his own social activities. Jesus was certainly serious-minded and devout. He's sinless in every possible way. But he never subjected himself, at least as far as we can tell, to the same external rigors that John and others did. We don't believe that Jesus took a Nazarite vow per se. Why? Well, because he didn't have to. He didn't have to do those kinds of things because he's the sinless son of God. He's the perfect man. He never went too far in any of his activities. There was never a risk for Jesus to be committing sin. He was never, even though he was tempted from outside forces, he did not have a sin nature, does not have a sin nature. And if you understand and believe the impeccability of Christ, he could not sin. So for Jesus, everything he did was sanctified. Everything. Every conversation he had, every party he went to, every time he put food into his body, every action was perfect. Jesus is the perfect God-man in every possible way. And so he would go to a banquet or to a dinner party. And we see, we see this in Matthew 9. He goes to Matthew's house and they all feast and the Pharisees get mad at him for that. We see him celebrating at a wedding in Cana in John chapter 2, a week-long celebration. And there's all kinds of food and dancing and drinks and all kinds of things. Now, there has been extensive discussion about whether or not Jesus would have drank uh, alcoholic wine or if it was some kind of a a watered down, was it fermented and yet he just did that responsibly or was it a mixture that was diluted to the point where there's no alcohol content? I won't rehash that here. I've talked about that before. But we know for a fact, and I want to land here, we know for a fact that Jesus was never drunk a day in his life, ever, ever. Why? Because the Bible teaches that drunkenness is a sin and Jesus never sinned. So whatever he did in whatever social environment, he was never guilty of committing sin on any level. Regardless of how responsible or upright or gracious that Jesus was, there were always opponents who seized on his social activities as an opportunity to slander him. Didn't matter what he did. And here, Jesus lists two key areas that he's being slandered. One is perceived immoral behavior, and two is bad associations. Jesus, we know he went to dinner parties, and we know he enjoyed good food, and he had fellowship with people, and yet his critics accused him of being a glutton, or they would see him with a cup in his hand, and they would accuse him of being a drunkard. They would actually accuse him of sin, both of which he was not guilty. Again, this is perceived immoral behavior, but there was none. He didn't do anything wrong by associating with these people and going to these dinner, dinner parties. He simply enjoyed a good meal. There's nothing wrong with being thankful for what God has given you when you eat. What about his friendships? When Jesus came to his own people, however, his own people didn't receive him, did they? Certainly not the super-religious Pharisees and Sadducees. They didn't receive him. They thought that he was beneath them, and they sort of spurned his message. However, Luke 15 records that all the tax collectors and all the sinners were coming out to him to listen to him. So sinners, all over the time, they would would see Jesus, they would hear about Jesus, and they would flock to him because he wouldn't turn them away. These were thieves, these were drunkards, prostitutes, traitors. Tax collectors were the most hated people in all of Israel. And they were hated and they were despised, and yet they still humbled themselves in repentance, they lowered themselves below Jesus, before him, and yet, and when they came to him, they found a friend in him. 
He received them when they were humble and when they were repentant. In fact, we never see any situation where Jesus turns away a repentant sinner. We see him turn away other kinds of people who will not repent. I think about the rich young ruler who just sat there and just boasted about how how holy and righteous he was. Jesus turned him away. But in every other situation where sinners would come to him and ask for mercy, he always brought them in. He always accepted them. In fact, we see an example of this in a parallel passage. Turn to Luke chapter 7, if you would. Luke chapter 7, just a couple pages over. Bible scholars have noted that Luke chapter 7, verses 31 to 35, is parallel to Matthew eleven sixteen through 19. Yet Luke really brings in a story that takes place immediately afterward. And if you read the Gospels kind of next to each other, you see that they, they all tell the same story, but they include different details that are important for the audience and for the moment. So that's what we see happening here. Luke records this story. Uh, Matthew doesn't see the need to in his context. But Luke records a story that takes place right at the same time here. And it takes place in the home of a Pharisee. I want to look at this together. Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36. Luke seven thirty-six. Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him, that's Jesus, to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who's touching him, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, Say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors, one who owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one who who he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who has forgiven little, loves little. And he turned to her and said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Remarkable story, remarkable occurrence. This is a powerful account of of love and devotion and forgiveness. And by the very events here, we see what Jesus is referring to here. This is what he's talking about, this very thing. He's dining in the home of a religious leader, and yet he's approached, approached by this woman who's doting over him. She's a sinner. She's likely a prostitute, most likely. And yet Jesus welcomes her. He doesn't send her away, and then he forgives her. He forgives her. He doesn't sidestep her sin, by the way. If you note in the verse here, I believe it is, let's see if I can find it here. 
Uh, verse 47, he says, her sins, and then he, he, he enumerates, he says, these sins are many. She's a, she's a big sinner, big time. I know her sins. I know what she's done. It's not a big secret. But her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. They're forgiven because she's repentant. This is powerful here. And he's alluding to the fact that, that she has sinned much, she has apologized and repented and wept over her sin, and she's been forgiven much, and she loves much. The joy of this woman is really akin to a wedding feast. I mean, how, how overjoyed do you think she's feeling when he tells her, the Son of God tells her, your sins are forgiven? How much joy do you think that brought to her and relief and exuberance? But the Pharisees couldn't see it. They couldn't see that. All he could do was tear down Jesus in his heart and just blast him in his heart for sinfulness. But Jesus really has seized on a very timely reality. Very timely reality. This is the the fickleness and the stubbornness and indifference of the human heart. Because the truth is there is always a person. There's always those who are going to find fault. No matter what happens, they will always find fault. And here's how it goes in the ministry, whether it's preaching ministry or you're sharing your faith or whatever it's going to be. You preach a gospel that is heavy on repentance and the seriousness of sin, and people will accuse you of being graceless. I've been accused of that before. Too heavy, too, too much law, too much judgment, not enough grace. However, you preach an extolling gospel of loving kindness. You talk about the kindness of God and the tenderness of God and the love of God and the forgiveness of God and the grace of God. And people will always say to you, well, you're, you're light on sin. You need to talk about sin more. There's just no pleasing some people. No matter what the, what the message is, you're always going to have a critic. It never fails. It never fails. A stubborn heart is a fault-finding heart. So what do you do? You be faithful and trust the Lord. You do what you're supposed to do. You share your faith regardless. My job is to preach the gospel, to preach the scriptures, and frankly, the critics are not as important to me. Back to Matthew 11. Again, this is Jesus' point. This is what he's talking about. In Jesus' evaluation, look at this, the application. The critics are like little children. Again, not in a good way. We see other teaching where Jesus really loves the children and tells us to become like children. He's talking about the innocence, if you will. But here, he's talking about immaturity and childishness. Spiritual immaturity. Play a joyful flute, they won't dance. Some folks, you you can be as happy as you want to be and they'll always be grumpy, every time. Or you sing a dirge and they won't mourn their sin no matter how much you press in. Please repent, turn from your sins. I've been in the counseling room and I've implored someone to turn from their sins and they literally laughed in my face. What do you do? What do you do? Either way, they will slander you and that's what Jesus is experiencing here. It doesn't matter. But what does Jesus say at the end of verse 19? Because he sets these two things up. What do you do? You preach one, you preach the other, nothing changes. Then he says this, wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Deeds. Luke records this saying as probably in a different context, but he says wisdom is vindicated by her children. What is he talking about? The validation of the message is going to be the fruit that it bears every time. 
Both John's ministry, Jesus' ministry, they were vindicated by the sheer fact that people got saved and lives were changed. How do you know if your testimony is bearing fruit? How do you know if a gospel ministry is bearing fruit? Because when people hear that message and they repent of their sins, their life changes. I'm not talking about numbers and stats and visible growth. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the validity of the gospel. When you have a false gospel that is preached and people latched onto it, it doesn't change their heart, it doesn't change their life. It doesn't draw them closer to God. False teaching will always draw people away from God and into sinfulness. But wisdom, the wisdom of that message, the gospel message is vindicated by what comes of that. Even local ministry, it's impossible to please everybody. But if you're faithful to God, he will vindicate in time. I've heard it said, and I've said this many, many times, that time and truth go hand in hand. You wait long enough and the truth will prevail. You're slandered in the moment, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. If your life is really doing what it's supposed to be doing, if your testimony is true, if your words are true, if your actions are true, God will vindicate you. And the truth will come out. And you have to trust in that. But Jesus has more to say here about the stubborn and the indifferent to those who will not heed the gospel message. And at this point in the narrative, Matthew records verse 20. Then he, Jesus, began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Now, he's traveling around to many different places, lots and lots of cities he's traveling to. And there are many cities where he did a large amount of preaching and miracles. There were just some places that he just camped out and did lots of things. And among these cities are Chorazin, this city Chorazin, uh, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. We believe that Chorazin was about two miles northwest of Capernaum, so in the same general vicinity. We don't really know much about the city. We know we, we have ruins somewhere over there, but we don't know much about it. Uh, Bethsaida was the hometown of Andrew and Simon Peter and Philip, so we know about that city. As for Capernaum, well, that was Jesus' home base. That's where he moved to to do his ministry. And the residents of these towns, they really had a front row seat to the powerful ministry of the Messiah. I mean, Jesus really, he could have been born anywhere in the world. But he was born in Bethlehem, moved to Nazareth, moved to Capernaum, and did his ministry right there. And so everybody around the area, everybody in town, they had a front row seat. They could have gone and listened to him any day of the week. They didn't have to travel, they didn't have to pack a bag, they didn't have to do anything. They could walk out their front door and listen to God talking to them in the streets. And so what do we see here? Does the Bible record mass revivals breaking out in these cities? No, in fact, we see the opposite. We see mass rejection in the form of stubborn indifference. Where they're not turning. They're not repenting. They're not coming to him in tears over and over again. And for this, Jesus actually denounces them in verse 20. This Greek word for denounce is a heavy word. It it conveys the idea of indignation, of anger, along with even insults and reproach. If anyone had a prime opportunity to hear the message of salvation, it was these people. But Matthew notes that most of his miracles were done in these cities, and yet they did not repent. Can you fathom that? Can you imagine Jesus coming into Gilmanton? And spending three years, probably a year and a half here, because he moved on, but a year and a half here, every single day, teaching on 140, healing people down at the ironworks market. I mean, can you imagine that? Just all these people coming out to see him doing all this stuff, and people not turning. 
That's always the way, isn't it? There's a gospel ministry that comes to town. People come out and they check it out and they see, but then they turn their backs on Christ. They don't turn from their sins. They don't embrace Jesus. And for this, Jesus pronounces on them, woe, woe. First to Chorazin and Bethsaida, look at verse 21. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Again, woe, this word can mean doom. It can also mean a solemn warning. Shame on you. Shame on you. Leon Morris, a New Testament scholar, calls this an expression of regret. Poor you. Poor you for not heeding the words. Woe to you. Shame on you. Why did you not listen when you heard? It's very clear that Jesus is lamenting the fact that people are coming out of these cities and they're not hearing and they're not repenting. But he goes further to even juxtapose these two cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida with the pagan cities of Tyre and Sidon. Do a study of Tyre and Sidon through the entire Bible and you're going to see a pretty startling picture here. Tyre and Sidon, they were Phoenician cities along the Mediterranean Sea. They were known for their wickedness. They were well known for their wickedness. Many of the Old Testament prophets denounced these cities for their grotesque Baal worship. They were just awful, awful cities. Furthermore, the king of Tyre, the king of Tyre, was so wicked that in Ezekiel 28, he's likened to Satan. The writer really goes after the king of, 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 the king of Tyre and really attributes and, and uses his words and his denunciation against the king of Tyre meant for Satan. So he looks at the king of Tyre and he's talking to Satan is what he's doing. Pretty powerful. So even to use these cities of Tyre and Sidon in the same sentence as a Jewish town, that would have been detestable. How dare you even use that, those names in talking about us? But Jesus tells them, if Tyre and Sidon, if they got to witness and hear all the things that, that you have witnessed and all the things that you've heard, they would have repented a long time ago. And they would have done so in sackcloth and ashes. Sackcloth and ashes represented a posture and practice of intense grief and mourning. Where you take off your clothes and put on a, basically a burlap sack that that rubs against your skin and is very uncomfortable, and you take dust from the ground and ashes from a fire, and you douse it on your head, and you roll around it, and you just make yourself look dirty and awful and disgusting, and you sit there and you wail and you mourn your own condition. Sometimes sackcloth and ashes is practiced for grief. A person who loses somebody, they're going through grief, and they, they lament and they change into these clothes and they douse themselves. Sometimes it's sackcloth and ashes over sins. Lord, have mercy, and they're, they're destroying them, their physical appearance on the outside. They don't hurt themselves, but they just they destroy their physical appearance for the moment, and they repent. This is a sign of great debasement, self-debasement for the purpose of repentance. Oh, Lord, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Take pity on me, O oh God. But Jesus assured Chorazin and Bethsaida, that even Tyre and Sidon, they would have turned at this point. They would have repented. He tells these two cities, they were being so stubborn that they were worse than the pagan cities of this day. You guys are worse. Verse 22, Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon 
in the day of judgment than for you. That is sobering. That's hard to hear. But what does it mean? Certainly the Jews in these cities, they weren't as ungodly and as pagan as Tyre and Sidon were. I mean, they weren't sacrificing their children on altars to Baal. They weren't running naked through the streets and debauching themselves with immorality, were they? But when, you, when you've been exposed to gospel truth and you willingly reject it, it's a worse sin. Those other sins are grotesque. Don't get me wrong. And Jesus isn't soft on sin here. But when, when you hear the truth and when you know better, the sin of unbelief is a worse sin. Elsewhere, Jesus says it's actually an unforgivable sin that you would, that you would turn in obstinance and in unbelief even though you know the truth, that you would willfully reject it. That's a worse sin, Jesus is saying, than a wicked person who perishes without hearing the gospel. But we understand this truth. Essentially, he's saying, shame on you when you do the wrong thing out of ignorance or foolishness, but double shame. It's a worse shame if you know better and do it anyway. You know what I'm talking about, right? Something wrong done in ignorance, it's like, that's wrong. But you didn't really know, but it's still wrong. But when you know better, it just burns, doesn't it? It burns. And that's what Jesus is talking about. That was Chorazin. That was Bethsaida. You knew I was coming. You heard John tell you I was coming, and I came, and I showed you, and I preached the kingdom, and you didn't repent. Woe to you. Then verse 23, and you, Capernaum. He turns his guns on his hometown, Capernaum. Will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You're not going up, are you? He says, you will descend to Hades, to hell. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained until this day. This denunciation is even worse, my friends. This is worse. Because Sodom, along with its sister Gomorrah, was arguably the most wicked city in biblical history. And what did God do? He destroyed these cities with fire and brimstone, didn't he? I mean, we even have sinful practices that derive their name from Sodom. It was that bad. But Jesus compares Capernaum, his hometown, a fishing village, where all of his friends live. He compares Capernaum and Sodom. Now, again, was Capernaum as outwardly wicked as Sodom? Outwardly? No, it wasn't. But Capernaum had something that Sodom never did. Jesus was living there. And daily he was teaching and healing them and ministering to them and performing miracles for them. But again, because Jesus lived there, it doesn't automatically mean that they're going to be exalted to heaven, right? You can't just say, well, we have have the Messiah in our town, so we're all set. He's not your patron saint that just brings you along with him. That's not how this works. Quite the contrary. He says, because you rejected the gospel... He says, they would descend to Hades. That imagery, scholars have caught on to that imagery. That imagery of descending to Hades comes from Isaiah 14, being likened to Babylon and even to Satan. The denunciation is, Satan, you will fall. You will descend to Hades. Babylon, you will descend to Hades. So this imagery of descending to Hades, that's being applied to Capernaum. You will descend to Hades for your unbelief. In fact, he adds this, if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, if Sodom saw what you see, they would have repented and been saved. They would have turned at this point, my friends, and they would have remained to this day. 
Think about what he's saying. If they had repented, you would have still been able to go and visit your friends in Sodom. And they would not have been burned up. But look at verse 24. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. There is a terrible danger of rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ and the truth to which it pertains. Terrible danger. And that judgment is compounded if you know the truth and fail to accept it. And there's application for us even now. I talked about this at the very beginning of my message. That we have, at a time unprecedented in history, access to biblical truth and access to the Word of God. You can't plead ignorance and say, well, we couldn't read. We didn't have a Bible. They were hiding it from us. If you want the Word of God, you can get it in seconds. If you want to give it away to someone else, we give away Bibles. You can take it. It's free. You can download it on your phone for free. You can get access to good teaching for free. Attending a good church, my friends, is dangerous. It is dangerous. Because once you've been well exposed to God's truth, He expects you to respond to it. You can't hear sound doctrine for weeks and months and years and then decide, well, we had a good church, we had a decent preacher, but, you know, whatever. You can't do that. The Bible does not allow you to do that. We have the gospel blasted all the time, and yet there are millions that reject it. And even with our church here, if we preach the truth of Jesus Christ and you don't respond to it, it would be better for you in fact, it would, actually, it would be better for a dead Unitarian church in New England than for you. But if you hear the truth, and you know the truth, God implores you. Christ compels you. The Spirit of God strives with you and will conform you to this. But they press in. If you know the truth, you must respond to it. And if you're hearing me, if you hear me right now, and you have not yet turned from your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ, do not wait. Listen to me. As a messenger of the gospel of Jesus Christ, listen. Do not live and die in your sins. Because here's the thing, there's forgiveness. You heard about this woman who came to him in tears? He forgave her. It does not matter what you've done in this life. It doesn't make a bit of difference to God. Yes, your sins are great, but His grace is greater. And He will forgive you if you repent. So don't harden your hearts. Don't just volley back and forth and fight and complain and be stubborn. Don't do that. Don't play that game. Turn and trust Him. And after you have been saved, live in a life that is in accordance with the gospel. Put to death the deeds of the body. Strive hard. Enter the kingdom by holy violence against your own sin and against the the ideologies that would hold you captive. Don't sit on the sidelines, my friends. Get in the game. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your truth. Lord, these kinds of passages are hard to read because we see you pouring out judgment on unrepentant peoples. And God, this judgment is severe. We look at what was done in Tyre and Sidon, the word said against them. We see what was done in Sodom and Gomorrah. And 
our hearts, our minds just cringe because we know that your judgment against sin is severe. That there will not be a single person who dies and goes and stands before you without forgiveness that will be able to stand. That you will crush and destroy and punish every sin that has ever been committed. And yet, and yet, you made Christ, who knew no sin, to be our sin for us, that we might know the righteousness of God in Him, in Christ. That you offer forgiveness and reconciliation and grace and love and kindness to us. And you lift us up. And you draw us to yourselves through the gospel. And yes, the law brings us to the understanding that we have sinned against you, but the gospel of grace tells us that we can find life in you. We don't have to work for it. We don't have to beg you for it. It's available right here. So God, I plead with you that you would do your work to change hearts and change minds and soften our hearts, Lord, to you. Help us not to stand in pride. Help me not to stand in pride, but to humble ourselves in the way that that woman did, as if kissing your feet and wetting your feet with our tears, that we might find forgiveness in Christ because it has been promised to us in the gospel. We thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name. Amen.